Andrea Michelle Bowman was an adopted 14-year-old from Hamilton, Michigan. On March 11, 1989, she allegedly stole money from her parents and headed out the door. She never came home. And despite the police following up on many alleged sightings, Andrea was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. big believer in karma. I'm not convinced that everything kind of works out in the end. I don't believe that people who have wronged me ever really end up paying for it. And likewise, because I'm an imperfect human, the truth is I've wronged some people in my life. That's the truth. We all make mistakes, bad decisions, whether it's when we're 18, 32, or 46. I'm not sure if I've really answered for bad decisions I've made either. To really condense it down, I guess you could say that on this earth, children get cancer and sometimes serial killers get away with it. That's just the way the earth is. Maybe if you believe in life on other planets, it works some different way somewhere else. Where we live in this universe, this is how it is. Also, it's amazing how so many times in our lives we make the right choices. We know, whether it's due to morality or our conscience or trying to help a friend out, trying to help your boss out, trying to help a coworker out, that we make the right choice. What we believe in our minds is right, and then still in the end... Somehow, some way, it seems like we get screwed over. Yeah, sometimes it works out, but once again, sometimes it doesn't. Shortly, you're going to hear why I'm starting off this particular show this way. Because on today's show, my guest is Kathy Turkanian. She is the biological mother of Andrea Bowman. And yes, I did say biological. Why? Because I can't talk to the people who adopted Kathy's daughter, Alexis, back in 1974. Well, I don't want to give too much away, but that should foreshadow where we're going with this episode. And we'll get into that. And I don't want to ruin it because having talked to Kathy, she tells her story and her daughter's story very, very well. At this point, I usually give you the facts of the case, but the truth is there aren't a lot of facts in this case. Maybe I should clarify that. There are plenty of facts in this case, except there are very few facts regarding the day that Andrea disappeared. But what happened before Andrea disappeared and everything That happened since 1989. Kathy's going to fill you in on all of it. After the interview, as I usually do, I'll have some commentary on what you heard. But this is once again another case where it's very, very personal to me. 
Of course, the last show that I did regarding Donnie Smatlack had to do with geography because I grew up in the area where he disappeared. And my biological family grew up in the same, very same town where Donnie's parents live now. In this particular case, and the disappearance of Andre Bowman, this case hits me even more personally, but we'll get into that afterwards. And before you hear Kathy's interview, I want to remind you, you can find me on Twitter, Unfound Podcast. You can find this show at Podomatic. You can find it in the iTunes store in the podcast section. I'd love for you to give me a decent review and please subscribe. You can email me at unfoundpodcast at gmail.com, and I would ask you that you join our Unfound discussion group on Facebook. I now give you my interview with Kathy Turkanian, biological mother of Andrea Bowman. I'm so happy to have on the show my guest, Kathy Turkanian, biological mother of Andrea Bowman. Kathy, thank you for being on the show. How are you doing today? Uh, thank you for having me. I'm doing well today, Edward. Let's just start back at the beginning. First, tell the, the listeners a little bit about yourself and then go back to the early 70s, the circumstances that went on with you and the daughter that you have that you named Alexis. Well, I'll do my best. Um, I was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, my name was uh, Mary Kathleen Ewing. I was adopted at six years old. My name was changed to Catherine Mary Croker. I uh, was my third, it was my mother's third husband, so, um, and he was in the Navy, so we traveled a lot when I was a child. I think she was, I was in the first grade, so. By the time I was in the seventh, we had been, I had been to seven different schools, and needless to say, it sort of rattles a kid going through that much, but so had all my other siblings, and I come from a large family, there's six of us, but um, sadly, we were very dysfunctional, and um, unfortunately, my third, my mother's third husband, my stepfather, adopted father, was abusive, and so it just really kind of made our families fall apart. Uh, my mother wasn't mentally really able to handle six kids and a husband that was gone all the time in this service. So anyway, um, my old, rather my younger sister got ill, and so that sort of took my mother's attention even more away from the rest of her kids. And um, I just had some really bad things happen to me as a young teenager, and I was a runaway in 1972. And uh, I ran away to New Orleans, unbelievably, and survived it, uh, which, you know, maybe the times have changed. Maybe those were sweeter times. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but mm -hmm. I got down there, and I was a pretty smart kid, you know. I, a comment made to me I can remember was uh, when they found out how old I was, a friend of mine uh, said I, that they thought I was dumb for 17, but pretty smart for 14. So, wow. You, know, you were 14 years old in, you were 14 years old in New Orleans. That's right. Wow. That's right. Okay. And I had hitchhiked from Virginia to New Orleans uh, and had survived it and went to work and got myself, you know, got to know people and started living with this little Mexican girl. And we worked for, you know, a man who owned apartments. And it really kind of 
shaped up to like maybe I could even consider going back to high school, which I did for about a week and a half, and it was just such a chaotic mess as mm-hmm. far as just the school itself because it was just segregating in a really nice part of New Orleans. Long story short, I didn't last. And I can remember the math teacher saying to me, you weren't as brave as you thought you were. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I went back to work. I worked as a waitress. And in the time that, well, let's say in the first two months that I got down to New Orleans, I met, I'll call him a boy now for the age that I am, but mm-hmm. young man that I eventually married and who is Alexis's father, I met him probably about two months after I got down there. And um, so he and I started living together, and about nine months into it, I called my mother because I was missing her, and I just really wanted to go home, you know. <laughs> I got the, you know, the uh, idea that maybe I needed to go back to high school and uh, home was the only place that I could actually achieve that. And, you know, at that point, my mother was, I know, very, very displeased with me. But, you know, it was a two-way street. And there's a lot of stuff she's died since that I'm not going to go into because it just Mm. is irrelevant now. But um, when I called her, she said to me, I don't have a daughter named Kathy, which really floored me because I expected more, at least, a little bit more than that from her, but I also kind of understood it. But so I just kind of left it alone, and before I knew it, she was hounding me at work, and, you know, mm-hmm. I was the age I was, and she was beginning to threaten me. I did call her back, and, you know, she pretty much decided to come home. She was going to call the police and my boss and just blow the whistle on me. Now, I was, like I said, I called her. I wanted to go home. But uh, she threw in something that I really wish she hadn't done now, she knew that I was with Randy, and she said, you know, you're going to have to marry that boy. If you want to bring him home, you're going to have to marry him. It was not my intention to bring him home, but anyway, it was not my intention probably to stay there either. I just knew that I couldn't live with her. It had just, you know, mm-hmm. there, were, there were issues, and nobody was ever going to address them. So I went home with him, and sure enough, she railroaded me more or less into marrying him, and... Um, then I was no longer her child. She was no longer responsible for me. And then I reflect, I think that's pretty much why she did it, you know. She didn't want to have me several states away, and something happened to me, and they call her to come get me, okay? Yeah. So now I'm Randy's responsibility. <laughs> well, actually, I was emancipated. It emancipated me, which was really what I was aiming for with her anyway, because there was just a lot of issues. My mother was the queen of bad decisions. She made a lot of bad decisions in her life, and it unfortunately put an end to her in some ways. But so I kind of the writing on the wall for me was get away from her. That's all I can. My first memories, as you know, are just get as far away from her as possible because she's going to cause you great damage. Now that's a terrible thing to say about your mother, but it was always that. And my sister felt the same way. She left home at fifteen. So. You know, it wasn't just me, and it took me years to figure that out. So anyway, Randy and I got married. We went back to New Orleans, and I guess it was about another year and a half, and I got pregnant, and he didn't want to have a child, and I was kind of like too broke to go all the way from Louisiana to New York City and have an abortion, and not only that, it just wasn't in my makeup. I just didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I was very naive, and, you know, I had no idea what I was getting myself into in a lot of respects, of course, you know. And I was totally alone. My mother was in Virginia. I was in Louisiana, and that was perfectly fine with me. 
I didn't want her around. I didn't. That's so strange, you know. I, it's, it's a, you know, that I think about this these days. It's like, where was that need? You know how kids yeah. need their mama. Yeah. And I, and it may just stem from her saying, I don't have a daughter named Kathy. I don't know. I just don't know. That's a good possibility. I, she was not there. She was not there with me throughout my pregnancy, so she really knew nothing of me. And it was funny to me in some ways that she never tried to find out how I, how I was doing, you know. And, and what, what did I have, a girl or a boy? Nothing, you know. I didn't get mm. a card, nothing. And I spent quite a bit of time in the hospital with Alexis because I got sick. I was preeclampsic, which means your blood pressure goes up. And um, she was breached, which means... She had, I had to have a C-section for her. So I was two weeks, my last two weeks of my pregnancy was in the hospital on my back on bed, bed rest because of my blood pressure. So, you know, yeah. that was the worst thing that happened. But you ended up having Alexis, her. but you ended up having her. I ended up having her. I had her and went home with her in New Orleans. And I had an apartment there and was able to get little jobs here and there when I needed to fill in the money when Randy wasn't making enough or however that went, you know, my mm-hmm. rent was cheap. But then one night I went to work, one afternoon, and I came home and uh, found Randy in the living room with some some woman he had picked up in the French Quarter who uh, I think they'd been having an affair for a while, and he was supposed to be taking care of Alexis, and he wasn't. She was in her bed crying, and... She was on a, a, a mattress with no sheet, and she didn't have a diaper on. And that was that was it. That, that, yeah. that just sent me off. That just sent me off, you know. Mm-hmm. So the next day I got my check. I got a, a, a ticket for the bus, and I went home on a bus. It took me five days on a bus, Greyhound bus, in 1974, to get from Louisiana to Virginia. Wow. When I got there, um, <laughs> and Alexis was a beautiful child throughout the whole thing. The baby didn't cry at all the last hour that I was on the bus. It was amazing, you know. So when I got there, my mother met me at the bus station, and, uh, you know, she checked Alexis over, and one of the first things she said to me, and this kind of gives you an inside, Mm -hmm. sort of a picture of the inside of how it was in my life with my mother. The first thing she said to me was, I was expecting this baby to have diaper rash all over her body. And I'm like, how do you think? Your kids got raised with no diaper rash because us older siblings were taking care of them. Of course, I would never speak to my mother that way, but, you know, that's just the sort of person she was, you know. She handed off all the responsibility for her other children to the older siblings and just went in her room and closed the door. And it's depression, you know. It's things like that. But so, Was this what brought that, about – was this kind of relationship you had with your mother, this is what – eventually brought about the adoption, giving her up? Well, my mother immediately assumed that I wasn't keeping my child. She just Mm -hmm. immediately assumed she was either going to take the child, she was either going to take Alexis or or I was going to give her away. So behind my back, she went to the uh, Catholic Charities, I I believe, first, Mm -hmm. who, um, you know, basically, my mother was in a, she just had, uh, a, a very bad cancer scare. She had a, a mastectomy and, you know, survived it, but they told her she, you know, made it five years, she might make it ten. So it was always walking that tightrope, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think she just saw this whole thing play out as 
my future, her future, Alexis's future, and it would be that she would adopt my daughter, although I had never said anything to her about it. It amazes me how this came about. But I'll go on from there. She had gone down to the uh, Catholic Charities and basically told them the predicament that she was in, that I was in, that there was a baby involved. And I find out 20 years later that my mother also said that I had taken LSD throughout my pregnancy and that... um, Mm-hmm. And that Randy had said, Alexis, Randy, my husband, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. had said, Alexis, ripple wine in her baby bottle. Does that never happen? That is all Does untrue. All untrue. Does that's all okay. very untrue. Okay. Now, I know people now. It's and, amazing. And let's just be clear. You didn't find, you didn't know that at the time. You found that out in two. I found that out in 20 years later after okay. I was notified that all of this had happened. Okay. okay. Great. Um, okay. And it was used. To sort of shut my mouth, it was mm-hmm. it was something that the Bowmans used to try to shut my mouth. Okay, we'll get to, we'll get to that. Just way. go. We'll yeah, go back yeah, to yeah, that. Sure. So, Absolutely. this this adoption though ended up happening, or you giving her up, and the adoption ended up happening. I guess you agreed to it or forced into it. Well, I think what happened was I began to really realize that. Well, first of all. First of all, when my mother what my mother did was she came back and she said to me, "You can well, how she put it. Either I can ab- adopt Alexis, or you can put her up for adoption, and she can get the best people out there because she's an infant, and you know people mm-hmm. who are adopting infants will, the best of the best out there. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And you can't. Oh, oh, and then she said, and if I take her and die in ten years, you'll come back and ruin her life." You know, and I was just like defiant as I'll get out. You're not getting my kid. Look what happened to me. I'd give her a what, you know. Mm-hmm. She had me in, in a position of, first of all, she pretty much, I had no money, you know. I was totally dependent on her. Randy had completely abandoned us. Mm-hmm. So I was, I think it was stripped down. I think I was beginning to sort of revert back into the kid that I was, you know. I wanted help, but mm-hmm. I didn't want you know, my mother was very harsh. She had a way of being very... Sounds like I didn't it. want my mother to inflict on my daughter what she inflicted on me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want her to have the life I had, okay? I was more or less promised that if I let her go right away, she would get the best families out there that were looking to adopt, you know? And this was before the day that you could actually pick through this possible best scenario, mm-hmm. okay? And yeah. open adoptions came to be, and that's a bunch of... That's a big lie, too. But, you know, so this wonderful, beautiful picture is painted for me if I make this choice. But if I make that choice, I'll ruin her life. Mm-hmm. Now, I was only 17, you know. I think at that point I had really held it together well. And I just needed somebody to help me, you know. And when your mother won't help you, you really have no place to go. And at that point, I didn't understand the welfare system. I and really truthfully didn't want her to live that way you know mm-hmm. i had lived that way my first memories were hunger homelessness fear i didn't want that you know mm-hmm. so i opted that direction then you know i really don't i don't hold it against myself i probably did for the first 10 years but i got over that because mm-hmm. i was pretty much brainwashed now that i think about it from this end of it all 
But you did. Oh, get, but you did give Alex. You gave Alexis up for adoption, and you carried on I with did. your life. More or less, I you know didn't carry on like I would have normally if this had never happened. Okay? Yeah, right. I right. spent many years on the verge of suicide, mm-hmm. and you know I know that now. But it took all of this mm-hmm. rushing back at me to realize it. But yeah, for several years I was probably very mm, self-destructive, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and probably very suicidal. But I'm not that. That's not how I operate, you know. And mm-hmm. I mean suicidal in the way of like having real urges to do things like, and I don't know if that comes with your age, you know, did 20-year-olds get these kind of uncontrollable urges, all of us, or them, <laughs> or whatever, but, you know. 20-year-olds, I think, instance, tend to do crazier things than 40-year-olds, I think, yeah. That's well, you know, for mm-hmm. instance, I used to have the urge of jumping out of a car, mm-hmm. and I don't know where it came from, and now that is self-destructive, and I can yeah. remember being depressed a lot, you know. But that was a very strong urge. It was like it was everything I could do to stay in the car. So I think I... But you did get yourself sorted out. I mean, you eventually... Obviously, you're still here. and. But here's why. Here's Mm -hmm. why. Mm -hmm. I wanted to meet my daughter. They promised me I would meet my daughter when she was 18 years old. You do this, you just let her go, let Mm -hmm. her be raised by good people, you know, and at 18, you can bring her. And you can, you can reconnect. And that's when know. 2002 came around. Well, actually, she was, when I started, when the Internet started becoming available mm-hmm. to me and that sort of thing, I immediately started putting her name out there and the story and trying to find her, you know. But the thing is, is you, she's not going to be able to find herself unless she knows who she is as a, you know, who she was before she was adopted. Mm-hmm. So really all of that is just kind of, didn't work, okay? So in 2010, after having talked to the uh, Catholic uh, charities and found out that they had flipped her over to uh, Norfolk Human Services, um, I have a much better name for them, but I won't Mm -hmm. go into that. Um, But they had flipped her over to that agency, and that agency had adopted her, and so out, so they had all the paperwork. They had everything Mm -hmm. to do with who got her, da-da-da-da-da, okay? But they only take it as far as end of the adoption. To, like, I went to court, and they gave me six months to get her back, and I tried, and I couldn't get anybody to help me then. So when I gave up, they got her. In mm. other words, I didn't show up at the end of that six months with everything mm. laid out to be able to please the court to get my daughter back, you see? Mm-hmm. Once, she went into, once she went into foster care, she became a ward of the state. Now I've got to prove I can take care of her, even though I never. This is did back anything. in the 1970s, right? Now uh, you know, mind you, nobody came to my house and took my daughter because I did something wrong to her. No, okay? I know. We know. Yeah, that, that never happened. I know. So, but now I'm in the position because I let her go to foster care that I that I might as well have been a drug addict, shooting dope on yeah. the corner, waiting yeah. for my. You know, I yeah. might as well have been that because that's the position I was going to be judged from. Not that I was a just totally freaked mm. out teenager who needed some help. Mm-hmm. You know, she was five months old when I showed up at my mother's house. Yeah, she was in perfect health. You know, well, so anyway, I couldn't I couldn't pull it together, so I just let her go. But I always always kept in my head up at eighteen. You know, I'm mm-hmm. going to find her. Well, I decided at fifteen I wanted to 
that when she was 15, I wanted to find her. But, you know, all I could do was call the agency and say, hey, you know, how, yeah, what do I have to do? What is, you know, how do I line this up? So I just finally said, look, folks, here's my phone number. Here's my address. Here's my name. If that kid walks into that office, you tell her to get in touch with me. Now, evidently, they took me serious and put it in the file. And I think I said that to them in, like, 2005. Mm-hmm. Because in 2010, I got that letter. And that letter mm-hmm. came from the Norfolk, Virginia uh, Human Services Department, Department of Human Services. And um, it said, you need to call us. There's some real important information we need to, to tell you, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm going to meet her. She's agreed to, you know, there's going to be a reunion. And it might not be the best thing in the world, but at least I'll get to know that she's okay. And she'll get to know her story. So I called him up, and uh, first thing the woman said to me was, are you alone? And I was, you know. Mm-hmm. I was down in Florida, and my husband was up in Massachusetts. I had my brother and, my, and his friends and my friends that I could lean on. But, you know, I was alone. I was alone in the apartment, alone in the state, in that sense. So she said it to me a couple times, and I said, well, do you mean, like, should I be sitting down? She said, yeah. She says to me that uh, a, a detective had shown up, and I, I don't believe she gave me the state that the detective came from, and that the detective needed DNA from me in order to identify a Jane Doe in Wisconsin and also to put into CODIS in case Alexis's body was ever found. And that Alexis had gone missing in 1989, and that the detective believed that the adoptive father was the reason. That's and it. you found out this 21 years. No, it was 20 no, years. Oh, 19. Oh, well, 20 okay. Years. 20 years. 74 to 84, and it was 2000. It was 20 years. I don't know how I figured it out, but it was mm. 20 years. Mm-hmm. Oh, so she went missing in 89, and yeah, I you found out. I think it was right before the, her 20, that 25th year hit. Okay. It was right before. But anyway, so my husband, I lost it. You know, I, I just lost it. What do you mean this adoptive father murdered her? And what do you mean she's been missing for him? What do you mean you need my DNA, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, who wrote this script? And why are you giving me this lead? You know, why are you giving me this to read? Yeah. So I just kind of flipped out. I just kind of lost it and just couldn't focus on, I couldn't do it. I couldn't go looking for her as a missing person through every state to see if I could recognize her face or what it was. He matched up the birth date. Right. Your, your, your husband did. He did his own search on the Internet, and he found That's out. Right. He figured it out. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And, you know, when I saw her, I was like, that's not my daughter. You know, I'm a blonde. She's just this dark-haired child, you know. And that was it. That was the only thing that, you know really kind of like looking at me with dark hair. Yeah. You know, and her mouth's a little different. And uh, it's strange. You know, I think some of it came from I just didn't want to accept the fact she was on a missing persons list. The first one on the list. And in fact, she ended up being, she was on a music video that you had seen by Runaway Train, and you had watched that video, and you saw her, and you didn't even know it was her at at the time. That's, that's, right. that's amazing. I was wow. in New Orleans when I saw it, and I was, it was just, I'd just gotten up, and I was 
drink of coffee, and I just I wasn't watching the video when it first started. I just remember hearing the song and something about it. You know, like I said, I had been a runaway. You know, yeah. and it's, it's just a really sad story when kids run away. They don't run away from good homes. Right. Kids don't run away from good homes, and I think society needs to get a grip on that. You know, mm-hmm. I think I think you know we beat up these little runaways, and we don't stop and think, well, where are they coming from, and where are we sending them back to? So what'd you do? What'd you do after that day? You found out... You know, I just kind of blew it off. I went, like, my kid didn't end up like that. She didn't run away from me because I treated her like my mother treated me, you know? Mm -hmm. I just sort of, like, moved on with my life. What'd you do in 2010, though? What'd you do? In 2010, I, you know, I had myself myself thinking, this is not going to affect me like I raised her, right? Yeah. It's not going to affect me like... If I had raised this child in my house for 18 years, 14 years, and she vanished, I'm going to have a little more distance. That's not so. Yeah. That's just not so. You do not forget your kids. Yeah. I, you know, she was five months old when I let her be adopted. That's what I remember. That's that's, that's who I remember. Yeah. I don't know this 14-year-old. Okay? Yeah. Yep. So you, you killed my infant. As far as I'm concerned, you know, because I can, I can't name them because they would get mad at me if I did. But there's a whole. Well, they probably wouldn't get mad at me. They just probably deny it. I don't know. Mm. But yeah. Eight, up to eight detectives told me this. I, I didn't just assume this on my own. Now, after they told me this, I went and FOIA'd all his information. And would you say FOIA'd? You got we got to we got to spell that out for people. FOIA'd mean okay. Freedom of in- Information Act for the listeners. That's right. Yes. That's okay. Right. And every state, you can access a person's criminal record via the FOIA. You just write out, I want so-and-so's record. Please send me the uh, form if they need a form. You fill out the form. They tell you, you know, if there's going to be money, what you've mm-hmm. got to pay. And then you just get all of, you know, what they went to court for, what the conviction was. Well, his very first crime was... Well, let's, uh, we have to say we can't use a pronoun here. We've got to say his name, Dennis Bowman. Yes. Is, is the guy's Lee name. Bowman from Hamilton, Michigan. Yes. Born in Muskegon. Yes. His very first crime was in 1981. He, now, Alexis was six years old. He, had, one of, he or Brenda had dropped her off at her first day at school. I think she was in preschool at, the point, at that point, maybe kindergarten, so it wasn't mm-hmm. quite first grade. But So she was in school while he is out basically stalking the backwoods of Holland uh, looking for somebody to jump, looking for a teenage girl to force into the woods and rape. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he tried to do. He basically pinned this girl, pulled a gun out, told her, get in the woods. She just stood there in fright. It's all in the transcript. Mm-hmm. She stood there with her mouth hanging open going, what do you mean get in the woods? He shoots at her. It goes past her ear. He shoots at her again. It, go- it hits her right, or rather it hits the ground right in front of her. And he tells her, I will blow a hole in you if you don't get in the woods. Now, he admitted to all this. All this is in the transcript. And this is Alexis. Uh, Alexis's the people that Catholic Charities ended up giving Alexis to, Dennis and Brenda Bowman. Right. Well, right. they actually handed the case over mm. to, um, to uh, Norfolk Human Resources, mm-hmm. and they're the ones who okay. located the Bowman. The Bowman. Let me give a side note to this. In 1974, there was a law written. It's called the CAPTA Law, and it was written by Vice President Mondale, and it spoke specifically to 
giving federal funds to agencies and to people who adopted disabled children. Yeah. Well, my mother's little story got my daughter, right. and I know this through Brenda because she tried to like she tried to use it against me that that Alexis was labeled a fetal alcohol syndrome. Now that that diagnosis, I was an RN, and I know this mm. for a fact because I was around back then too. Fetal al- alcohol syndrome, that condition had just been had just come to be yeah. the year before, like 1973. Had just you know the the syndrome had just been uh, identify, diagnose, and label, okay? I never drank. I never drank till after I gave Alexis up, and it was quite a few years before I ever drank, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. So this child did not, and you can look at her, anybody with any sense would know there's nothing wrong with her. She went from straight A's while Dennis was in prison to D's and F's when he got out, okay? But in, in the 1980s. Yeah. But Mondell had the, we had this law that said the people who adopted or took into their care children with certain problems, no, fetal alcohol, would be, get government money. It didn't have to just be one thing. It right, right. Right. So disability. alcohol syndrome was a brand new diagnosis. My point being, diagnoses are a dime a dozen, number one. Okay? Mm-hmm. You can throw diagnoses at people all day long, and another doctor will say, they don't have any of that. Yeah. Okay? But they saw, I believe, this is my belief, and if I can get into those records, and I will, it's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. That what they did is they decided, okay, she's fetal alcohol syndrome. It's such a new syndrome. They won't figure it out for years and years in the first place. We'll get funded for her getting adopted. The parents get a certain amount of money every month, I believe, and I'll bet you any money money. They did until mm-hmm. she got into school, and they re-diagnosed her and said, nothing wrong with this kid. So that Mondale, but anyway, that bill once written past, Mondale almost immediately came out and said, you know, this really is probably going to cause a lot of children to get abused, this system to get abused, these children to go into situations mm-hmm. that just because of the money they access these kids. Okay? And that's kind of what happened, and, that's, and then that's what happened in Alexis' case. And that's what happened. She's one of the first ones. I'll guarantee you, she's one of the first ones. And this is, if I could get into these files, this, I bet I could find a class action suit going on somewhere. See, Catholic Charities just got out of the yeah, they don't do adoptions oh, anymore. Right after I found out about Alexis. And I'm yeah. not kidding you, right afterwards. Something tells me they got funded quite a bit of money from the state to flip those kids over there so the state could have, make money on the captive bill and so could they. Just, I get this gut feeling, you know? Let's get back to Dennis so, Bowman. So in 1980, he tried in to... 1980... Uh, uh, 1980 well, let me get back to who they were prior to adopting Alexis. Okay. I found out that through the detective, because I talked to the detective, after we located where Alexis went missing from, we contacted that detective. That detective let me know that this case was botched by the original investigators that Alexis told that Bowman was, uh, Dennis Bowman was molesting her, that the social workers had botched it. It had just been botched all the way down the line. Now, they, he told me that, and he told my husband that. He said that the uh, investigation was never, that there was never any investigation into Dennis Bowman's past. Dennis Bowman was on parole at the time for the 1980 crime of pulling that gun on that teenager and telling her to get in the woods or he was going to kill her. Mm-hmm. So to get back to that story, when she, what happened was after he shot her the second time and he said he was going to kill her if she didn't go into the woods, a truck comes pulling up behind him. He doesn't see the truck until it's 
right at his side, but she sees it coming, and she takes her. Now, I talked to this woman 24 years after this happened to her. But anyway, she took her bicycle, and she threw it out in the middle of the road mm-hmm. in front of the truck, okay? And the judge said one of his statements in the court transcripts about this was, if it were not for the fortuitous passing of that truck and that woman's willingness to do whatever she had to do to get out of the situation, he would have killed her. He would have raped and killed her. And that if he's out and he's in the public, women are not safe. Now, that was written by a judge right before he went to jail for that 1980 crime. Alexis vanished two and a half years later after he got out. Okay, Mm -hmm. almost as soon as he got out, he started molesting her. Mm -hmm. And then she vanished. So it sort of fulfilled what the judge said. So I spoke to his first victim, and what she told me was the look, his eyes, she'd never seen such evil in her life. Mm-hmm. And now she was 18 years old, you know, so, you know, she probably hadn't encountered a lot of evil, but that stuck with her. Those eyes stuck with her. She said she'd rather been shot in the back than forced into the woods with him. Mm-hmm. And she thought she'd put him away forever. Nope. He didn't even spend five years in prison. Oh, he spent just five years. And Brenda Bowman, after he was uh, transferred up to uh, Kenross from Jackson, because Jackson had a, a riot in, like, 1982, I think. And so somehow Bowman ends up with all of his records on his lap. So he can plead for a mistrial, and they just laugh in his face and send him up to Kenross. Well, so in Kenross, what, uh, what Brenda does is she loads Alexis up, takes her out of school, and follows him up there. So she can be right to northern Michigan, right northern Michigan, up, right. the, up there. That's yeah, right. from all the family and friends Alexis knew, Brenda follows that rapist, sociopathic, narcissistic maniac. Yeah. So she can be right next to that prison. I went up there. I drove the whole. I went everywhere Alexis went. Everywhere Alexis has been. I've you went up there between since 2010. That's you've right. been up there. Yes. That's right. Me and a mm. friend of ours. A friend of mine that actually got this whole ball rolling mm-hmm. because he's the one, he's the one that found Racine Jane Doe and thought it was Alexis. That that's how it all happened. Yeah. You know, he called the Wisconsin Police Department, that called the Michigan Police Department, that then you know researched a little bit about Alexis's having gone missing and went, "Ooh, boy, look at this! Whoa, this is mm-hmm. a botched case." And now get this: the guy who found me put Bowman away in '80 was one mm-hmm. of the cops on that. It, or, you know, was part of getting him, him put away. You know, he was one of the investigators mm-hmm. that put it all together to, you know, present it to the court. So he knew Bowman. Yes, and, and but me. the thing is, he gets out of jail, though, and he and his wife have another daughter. That's right. And so w- In 1987. That's right. He gets out in 86. Now, he was supposed to spend 10 years, which would have been 1990 he should have gotten out. But he gets out in 86, and she's pregnant within the year. Well, her daughter is born. She's pregnant within months, okay? Mm-hmm. So he's, he's sent back down to Holland, Michigan, to wrap it all up and get, you know, where the, like, the parole officer, you know, is all set up and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. While she waits up in uh, Kenroth, up in the UP, and Alexis is in school. What he did is he moved right back into the trailer that her, um, that his in-laws, Brenda's mother and uh, uh, stepfather, own. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was the trailer that he was living in when he went after that girl in 1980. So wow. he's right back in that neighborhood. Wow. And the amazing thing is, within a year, some girl was stabbed to death right around the corner from his house. So anyway, 
Was that killer ever caught? Killer ever caught? No, never was. Never was. Wow. There was was a girl killed right before he went to prison, right around the corner from his house, knifed to death. And when he gets out, there's a woman that's murdered right around the corner from his house that's knifed to death. And there's a 10-year span between the two. Oh, my. Go figure, huh? That's certainly a coincidence. So, you know... Yeah, it, it, it had the cops sit up and take notice, too. But they don't have anything. They don't have any DNA. They don't have this. They don't have that. Oh, there's another story. There was a six-year-old that came to the page that I have for Alexis who said, I believe my abduction is tied in somehow to your daughter's having gone missing. And sure enough, Dennis Bowman drove that road that that child was abducted off of back and forth to work every day. You know? Mm-hmm. Every, and this happened right after Alexis went missing. This in 1989. Yes, she was abducted, taken from where Dennis Bowman worked, the road he worked off of, and taken all the way to the park that's right around the corner from his house. Now, why did he drive 17 miles? Because that's where he still stays. So, mm. you know, that whole thing. So what happened right before, right before Andrea uh, disappeared? You know, you, know, you know what the story is. You know, they claim that she took some money and took off. And that's still that's what they right. claim to this day. In November of 88, Alexis started refusing to go home. And From school. They called the police on her. Yes. They called the police on her, and they said, this kid refuses to come home. Then Alexis told them, he's molesting me. Then they went to Bowman and Brenda's house while they had Alexis, and they said, she's saying this about you. And they said, oh, we didn't do that. She's having problems because she's adopted and whatever else they said. And the social worker said, do whatever you have to do. Now, this is in the record. Mm-hmm. Do whatever you have to do to keep me from coming back out here. Now, this was after he had moved her out to that old farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. out of the trailer where his in-laws owned so other people could see him and know what was going on. He and Brenda moved out to the countryside, and that's where she went missing from. Well, anyway, when she told them that he was molesting her, they went, the truant officer and the social worker went over to the house. They chose not to believe Alexis. The social worker said, do whatever you have to to keep me from coming back here. Alexis went missing, uh, let's see, November, December, January, January, March. About three and a half months later, Alexis vanished. So he did whatever he, he had did. to. He did, yeah. That's, that's the way I read it. Now, did the, I, did I, I the school know. know of his prior conviction from the 1980 incident? Nobody did. Nobody did. Nobody did. Mm. His mm. parole officer allowed him to live in a house with a teenager, a girl who's becoming a teenager. Like she was, yeah, I think 14. When he got out, she would have just been started, or she would have just been 13 when he got out of prison. 74. 16. No, she's 12, just becoming 13. So she moved back down to the Hamilton area after she got out of school and the kids got out in June. She moves back down there in June of 87. Because he got out in 86 mm-hmm. and she was going to school. She was back down there at the very earliest, the uh, the, the winter of 86 and at the very latest uh, when kids, in, or, mm-hmm. or the, the summer of 87. Somewhere in there, mm-hmm. okay? By March of 89, she vanished. And he, she's gone to authorities and said, he's molesting me. And she vanishes mm. shortly afterwards. And why does she vanish? Because he's on parole for mm. that 1981 crime. And he knows that if they listen to her, he's going back to prison. For a long, not just five years this time. It's going to be, yes. hopefully, f- forever. 
hopefully. That's right. Right. That's right. And right. now, why did that parole officer allow that man to live in a house with that child? I don't know. Maybe he hit her out. Maybe that's the reason she didn't come back down there for a year. You know? Right. Maybe he denied she ever existed. I don't know. I tried to find prison record and parole records on him. They don't exist. You know, what I think happened is a certain amount of time, the family can, or, or, you know, the person, the convicted person can go and request that the records be destroyed. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's what, what happened. happened. They systematically, you know, and one thing that's, that's come up over and over again in my search for Alexis is people who, now Hamilton's only about 5,000 people. It's a very small town. Kids have come who are now grown-ups in their 40s have come to me and said, hey, I never knew she went missing. I never, you know, oh we never heard anything about it. Nobody said a word. When I went up there and met the few people whose kids knew my daughter, they said, well, we just thought she ran off. She got fed up, ran off. Is that the way you treat your kids in such a small community? Is that how you handle, you just let them run off? You yeah, it's not like she was home? 19. You know That's what I mean? Right. You know, it's she was a child. Yeah, child yeah, right. Who had already gone and said, please help me from this man. Now, Dennis... Alexis, I think, started doing, well, the boys liked her. She was a cute little girl, and it's that time of your life, right? So she had a couple of little boyfriends that she liked. They liked her. But then they went and, and met Dennis Bowman. One particular that I know this from, from an inside, Dennis Bowman had a, has a knife fixation. And he would pull out his knife, his big, sharp knives, and he would show this kid Look at how sharp my knife is. And he would shave the hair off his arm. Oh, now, man. just recently when he repinned the story about what happened in the, on that day that he called Alexis a runaway and a thief, mm. all of a sudden, now, 30 years ago, there were, no, there were no details such as how many piles, or no, there was a, one pile of money, now there's two. Um, yeah, his story no, has changed over the years as to what yeah, actually happened yeah. that day. He's repinned his story. Now yeah. there's more money. And see, a liar will always add to the lie. You, yeah. you know, people who are telling the truth don't have to add or subtract anything. Yeah. That's what they saw. That's what they're going to tell you. People who tell lies don't remember the details. So they, they don't just, usually they don't subtract from the lie. They add to the lie. And sure enough, that's what Dennis did. Now there's more to what happened to Alexis. And Added to not, you know, there's not just one pile of money she took. But she took one pile of money but left a pile of money. Like, who does that, right? She yeah. hated him so much that she's going to run off and steal his money. She'd take it all. Are there any allegations? What about his other daughter? Are there any allegations that he might have done things to his, his newer daughter that was born in 80s? Yeah, go ahead. I, I want to add this in that story, and then I'll answer you this. Mm -hmm. He also added in his story that he just penned last year – all of a sudden, there's ripped jeans and a knife in this story. Where do these ripped jeans and a knife come from? They come from, he's fascinated with knives. He's so fascinated, he's lost sort of track what he said, so he might as well throw a knife in there. And, oh, some ripped jeans, what the heck? You, you see what I'm saying? He's the only person I know whose memory gets better as he gets older. Huh. But, but let's go to 1998. Now, what happened with him in 1998 with a coworker? In 98, he was working, I want to say he was working like part-time, but I don't know if sure. <coughs> excuse me, but he was working in like an assembly kind of industry mm. and building yachts. And so his co-worker, this woman, I'll call her VV, she uh, was uh, 
actually scratch that, but um, so I don't want to name her. But anyway, she worked with him, and she, uh, you know, was totally oblivious of him. She's like a twenty-some-odd-year-old girl working part-time, and he's a forty-some-year-old man working part-time, and they never crossed paths except for now and then. But he has worked up an entire scenario of a relationship, an affair with her, and that's what the psychiatrist said that. His fixation was with her was not unlike a full-blown affair, okay? Mm -hmm. This girl didn't even know he was alive. He was infatuated with her, yeah. Yes, yes. Now, you know, hey, people have crushes, you know? Sure. Sometimes you fall over your, you know, you fall on your face trying to, like, express it and, hey, notice me over here, you know? Not this deviant. In Dennis's mind, he's having a full-blown affair. She's seeing other men. So therefore, she must pay. So he starts breaking into her place. And she lives in this rather isolated, you know, this is like the backwoods of Michigan. And he finds out where she lives. He knows her name, where she lives. She doesn't even know he's alive. And he starts breaking into her place. Well, she did have a boyfriend that she was breaking up with. And he was in and out. But I don't think he was breaking in, okay? I don't really remember the details of him. But there were a dozen times that an unknown person broke in and one time that he broke in. So, you know, it was like, it was so weird that the cops put an alarm on the trailer. They said, look, you know, we just got to figure this out. This girl's gone most of the time. These break-ins are happening at, you know, all hours. It's something really strange is going on. Some weirdos out there. And sure enough, okay, he breaks into the place because he doesn't know the alarm has been put on. The cop goes over there, and the cop catches him jumping out of the trailer, okay? There's crowbars everywhere, mm. crow marks, crow, you know, those, mm. those pry marks on the doors where, you know, he's pried his way in and out. He talked himself somehow. Well, again, sociopaths can be charming, okay? They just get that counter, that alter ego that's charming and bring that one up, okay? So he charms himself outrageously. He gets out just to boil it down. He gets out of it at least for the time being. He gets out of it for the time being. For a few hours, he gets released to go home. Okay, Uh so the cop is driving back. Now he told this cop the reason he was over at this woman's house and that they were such great buddies. He was having electrical work done on his house and he had diarrhea, so he had to go over to her house to use her bathroom. Now you know what? Nobody gets in my house that I know that's got problems like that. Okay, Mm. they're gonna go to their family's house. He gets away with it, but later they go back to his house, and he is charged right. with something, and he is interviewed by a psychiatrist. What does he say to the well, psychiatrist? Actually, apparently, he said a lot. Um, I only have the last page, and it's page 58. And in the last page, every time the psychiatrist – now, this is just sort of a summation of what the psychiatrist said. But the psychiatrist said, every time I question Mr. Bowman about his missing daughter – Andrea Bowman, he says back to me, all the evidence is lost. He says that coupled with, and I would read it to you if I had it in front of me, but mm-hmm. that coupled with the age that Andrea Bowman vanished, along with the fact that Dennis Bowman's problems, problems started at the same age. In other words, he started having, well, his a sociopath basically becomes mm. a sociopath because they feel everybody's against them. A sociopath that becomes pathological and ends up killing people is because that sexual thing hits that that it. But they both occur at the same time. Okay, mm-hmm. so that 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 anger is 
the sex and the anger become one, okay? Yeah. So that they're angry forever, but, but now it's all confused with sexuality, and so that every grown woman, every little, every girl is that 15-year-old girl that ticked him off mm-hmm. when, that, when his puberty was happening at the same time. So basically what the, psychi- the psychiatrist said was those two things together makes him point his finger right at Dennis Bowman for doing for that. For Andrea's disappearance. For her disappearance. He needs to be the one looked at for her dis- disappearance. Tell now, the listeners was- tell the listeners about what happened when his daughter, who eventually got old enough of college age, what happened when she ended up going to college and Dennis Bowman, what, what happened with that? Well, I had gotten through an inside source more information about Dennis Bowman. And his daughter went to school, uh, in a, I would say about ni- uh, 2008, I want to say. She studied. Mm-hmm. She didn't graduate. She studied okay. there. Okay. So she went to this college, and for some reason, he was making enough of a, of a – he was seen enough on that campus that over and over again, the campus police stopped him and said, what are you doing on this campus? And told him to leave. He was asked to leave. Now, this was more than once, you know, mm-hmm. less than a dozen times. Now, this girl didn't go there for four years. She just went there for, I think, probably a semester or two. So, more or less, he was there every day of every week that she was in class, just hanging out. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Very strange. Very what strange. father goes and hangs out? He might have even been in the dormitory because one of the girls, sadly, her only friend... And the only person that's come forward and said, now, this man didn't do this. I asked her, how many times did you see him on that campus? Because I had this information. She said, once. I said, where did you see him? In the dorm, in his daughter's dorm room. What's he doing hanging out? In his and how far was room? that from where he lived? Uh, Kalamazoo is where the school is, and mm-hmm. he lives in Hamilton. So that's probably like 40 miles. Wow. Okay. So he's making an 80-mile round trip. It's, let's say three times a week, and he's hanging out in the dorm room so many times that the police ask him to leave over and over again, and it's documented. So mm-hmm. he's stalking those young girls, and mm-hmm. it really would be great if I could get them to believe that this is a fact, but there's a few of them that just insist on putting themselves in the line of fire. So mm-hmm. there's nothing I can do about it, because his daughter thinks he can do no wrong. Of course, Yeah. She's pretty much, I think, she's pretty much inherited that sociopathic mentality from him. I think it's a, an, inherit, an inherent thing, okay? And then nurture, nature, that whole thing plays out. And, his, and, and the wife is, do you, let's put it this way. What you think you know about it, do you think that she had a part in Andrea's disappearance as well, the wife? I believe she realized pretty quickly that Dennis did this. And I believe, no, I know that all the tips she put out in the six months before they vanished, after Alexis went missing, they moved out of the house she went missing from and literally dropped off the map six months after that happened, after she went missing. But in that six-month period, Brenda Bowman called the police over and over again saying that she had been notified that Alexis had been seen XYZ place. Well, my first question Mm -hmm. is, why didn't they just call the police? Why would they be calling her to have her tell, you know what I mean? Yeah. Basically, it's an elaborate ruse, in my yeah. eyes. Yeah. It's an elaborate ruse to uh, lead that truant officer all over southwest Michigan to wherever. See, 
Dennis Bowman, like I said, has that magical thinking, and his last statement to the police was, they asked him, what do you think happened to Andrea? He said, oh, she's probably, she probably ran off, no, she ran off with the Mexicans, and she's dead. Okay? Mm-hmm. So his magical thinking has put it all up on all the Mexicans, and she's dead. The only truthful statement there is that she's dead. Yeah. Now, he feels so confident that all the evidence is lost that he can go into the police department, lie on his second story, and when they ask him what does he think happened to her, he can say, she's dead. Where do, you, where do, you, think, where do you think your Alexis is? Speaking of evidence, she is. That's what I you believe. The property that she went missing from. I had all that property searched. The, ser- the search went across the road, under the overpass, down into the gullies that could be gotten to. The woman said nothing could be found. That I placed this together in the timeline I put together. She's on the property that he bought. Well, he bought uh, property not far from where she went missing, either the year before she went missing or the year she went missing. And his plans were, well, he moved her out of the trailer, out to that country farm, old country farmhouse killed her and then took her over to the property that he was buying that mm-hmm. had no it had no mm-hmm. structure on it. He, now he claimed it as his address, but it had no taxable livable structure on it until 1996. I believe he buried her on that property while light poles were being put in and sewer tanks mm-hmm. were being put in and you know, I've even mm-hmm. talked to the police and they have uh, they have uh, shots of that property over the years. You know, they'd be like that county, you know, they survey the, the county every so many years and i've been told they have shots of his property and how it's changed over the years that he's owned it now i googled his property and i noticed there's an excavated spot right off his back porch that suddenly after he found out about me got excavated excavated again got like it, it got dug up again and you can see it on google maps wow so google earth know. like from the sky like a satellite shot yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, he's on a three property. He's on a three-acre property now, and it would have taken him no problem at all to kill her, take her to that property, put her in a hole where the septic tank was being no. going to be built or going to be buried, and that's where she's at. Now, is that where he lives now? That's where he lives now. That's right. That's where he's at now. Now, since I was located, and this is all you know, surfaced. Mm-hmm. The police have gone to him and said, you know, Dennis, you know, you need to clear yourself here. You're the person who saw her last. You're the, you know, you have this background. He refuses to cooperate now, and he has had his phone disconnected, and he's thrown up a fence around his property. See, in Michigan, they have a mushroom hunting season, and people can just roam up on your property and go mushroom hunting. Prior to my coming on the scene and mm-hmm. basically just slamming my hands down on the desk. For the last six years. The top of my lungs. Yeah. For the last six years, he's put up a fence so nobody can roam on his property now. But that police officer went over there and put his foot in the door and said, Dennis, clear yourself. And Dennis told him in no uncertain cuss words to get off his property. He wasn't going to cooperate. Mm. Well, there's ways of making a witness talk. And he's put himself in the position of a witness. What's now, Dennis Bowman doing now? Where is he? Well, What's he doing now? Does he work? Is he retired? What's he do? He is. As far as I can gather, he's disabled and he draws a disability. I think um, that there's some sort of behind. I think it's involving being a sex offender. 
Okay, mm. I think that what happened, well, he was grandfathered in. See, he's not on a sex offenders list. He was grandfathered in. He did his his dirt before mm. they could, before there was a law, okay? Yeah. So he's grandfathered in. But I think what happened in 98, they said, okay, bud, you want to stay out of prison? You're going to go to the sex offenders school, and you're going to take these drugs right here that's going to keep you corralled. Okay, I think that's what's going on, and so now he's on these drugs, and he's claimed he's disabled, and he's claiming disability. Basically, I mean, I, I, I can only, you know, I can only sort of like assume from what evidence I have, but I can't imagine that that sex offender program just cut him loose and said, "Okay, you're all cured, bye bye." Uh uh-uh. uh So what what's ha- what has to happen next? Life. Where where is what's what's the next big uh, marker mal marker in this? What's the next Step you're well, trying to uh, what's what's next for you in trying to find your daughter Alexis? What's next? Um, well, I, it actually just remains the same. I continue to go to the missing in Michigan. I continue to have that page on Facebook. Find Andrea M. Bowman. Mm-hmm. I um, continue to assert that he did what. I'm not the only one who believes he he murdered her. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I have gotten some insight into the judicial judicial system that will allow me to sidestep a grand jury and that's as far as I can really talk about okay that. how do and, you, you know if we could just maybe you know wrap this up now what are your attitudes now toward adoption you know uh, you were adopted I've been adopted. We've talked about that, not on this show, but we've talked about my how I was adopted. And then you, you know, kind of being forced to give up Alexis for adoption. How do you feel about that now? You know, having a life of it. I'm just totally appalled. I'm totally appalled that you could actually put a price on a child's head and sell it to the highest bidder. Okay, mm-hmm. that's what's happening in adoption today. Now it's big business. A white child, a white infant, $30,000. A black infant, $15,000. An Asian infant, $10,000. Who who decides these prices? Oh, no, I'm sorry. 60000 for a white, 30000 for an African American. Mm. You know? Mm. So it's baby selling. It's baby selling. Everybody's making a dime. Now, in that, <clears throat> some children get the perfect scenario. And God bless them, they deserve it. Because they're never going to see who, most of the time... They're never going to know anything about their birth family. And a lot of it has to do with they're afraid to make their adopted family angry. You know, it may be that they're perfectly okay with the adoption and everything hunky-dory, but they're afraid that their adoptive mother and father will disown them. Okay? Mm -hmm. So who has the right to do that to a kid? To completely annihilate who they were born to be and then... To hold over their heads a threat of, we will just disown you and you will have no want, okay? Because the courts took your mother and father. And if you find that you can't connect with them, we've, given, we've written you off. Or the fact that they can flat out lie to these young mothers. First of all, I was afraid. They worked on my fear, okay? Mm-hmm. They didn't try to prop up what was strong about me. They took everything that was weak about me, my age, my you know, anybody's afraid of the world when they're that age. I don't care what mask they're putting on, you know. I knew, pretty much, I knew what a broken family was, and I didn't want my daughter to have that. But I didn't want to give her up either. Was that my only option? No. But they wanted me to believe that was my only option, and that's what they do to young women still, okay? And then they go, 
okay, well, we'll just let you pick out that adoptive family, and we'll do it all open, and everybody will be hunky-dory. And then that family can just go, nope, no more, turn off that open adoption to close. And guess what? There is no they, – they can't be taken to court. There's no legal – there's no law that says they have to remain open. So mm-hmm. it's up to them when they want to just switch it all off. Now, mind you, the mother has bonded to the child. The child has bonded to the mother. The adoptive family or so, you know, so everybody's doing this together, and it's all about love. Until the adoptive family just gets a little twitch, you know? And then they can, they can flip that biological mother into a dry, drug addict in the ditches, you know? I know that's what the Bowmans did to Alexis. They told her that, that she was adopted right before she went missing. Mm-hmm. So he basically systematically worked, it, worked his way out of her life as a father. Basically told her that I was dead, a dead junkie in the ditch, and that nobody would want her. They, one of the things they refused to go on television the one time that they were going to do a news story on Alexis and did a news story. Brenda Bowman, when the uh, news company or the news people called and said, you know, you want to plead for your daughter, you want to come on on television and plead for her to come home, she was, no, I'm still too devastated. She was really bothered about being adopted. Uh, what else did she say? Um, she was afraid that she was going to go to foster home because of fights with her parents. First of all, why would she go to a, to a foster home? You know, she's adopted. She's not an orphan that needs to go to a foster home. If anything, she would go to a youth center. Well, you know, in a private message, Brenda had said to me, the only time she's ever been in a foster home was when you put her in one. And then... A week later, she's telling the news people that Alexis was afraid of going into a foster home because of fights with her mother. So I know that they tormented her about who I was and nobody loved her. And see, that's a whole lot of it. You know, it's not a positive thing to be adopted. It really isn't. When I found out, I started hearing things that just I couldn't believe. Children say there was one thing. Uh, Kids who complain about being adopted... Uh, what they heard growing up was, aren't you glad you weren't aborted? You, you could have just been an abortion. Why, you know, why would you say that to somebody? Because they were adopted. Because they're whining about abuse. You know, and, and having a negative uh, view of really against adoption really makes people question themselves, too, because everybody's so positive about adoption. You know, well, I would never hurt a child. Well, it's not about you, you know? It's about the kid. You know, adoption can be a bad... It can enslave children. It can make them disappear. It makes them disappear. They, they no longer have a connection to a family that is biological. Now, you know, if the Bowens were out here fighting, looking for Alexis as hard as I was, mm-hmm. or, or am, it, it would be... I'd have a different view, maybe. But well, you have to realize that not all adoptive parents are like the Bowens. Oh, well, I know that. I know that. But I don't believe that children should be just given away, honestly. I think they should stay within their family, their biological family, if at all possible. You know, if it absolutely is the last resort, okay. But I think a human being wants to know where they biologically come from, or they would not always go. These kids always seek their family, just about always. Didn't you? No, I didn't. No, I I didn't. No, I didn't. Okay, well, you're an exception. Most people <laughs> want to know who they biologically come from. I mean, you know, if nothing else, just to know, what, why have I got this tumor growing out the side of me, you know? Mm. There is the health.
health history issue. You know, there are reasons that people, and I think a majority of them, do go looking for their parents. They need to know. I needed to know who my father was, but my mother never would tell me. You know, so it's just not, it wasn't fair of me to decide for Alexis who her parents were going to be. God gave her to me, you know. It wasn't fair of anybody to say other people, strangers, could be a better parent to your kid than you. They should have sat with me and seen what kind of parent I was, and they never did. And I, you know, I was so young, I didn't even know my rights. Kathy, we're going to have to, uh, I think, end this uh, interview and conversation on that. I, um, where can people find you online? Website, Facebook, where can they find you? Uh, Facebook. Facebook, I have a page, uh, Find Andrea M. Bowman, um, and I'm usually there most of the time. There is a $25,000 reward for her. Okay. Uh, where if, you, if anybody has information for her whereabouts and can you know, produce a her mm-hmm. or information leading to the arrest of the person sure. responsible. Sure. So that I wanted to put that out there so everybody knows. Okay. And um, you know, just come to the website, pin to the top of the page. What's the website? What story. is the website? Oh, well, there's not a website actually. Oh. The only website I have for her is through the um, Michigan Search and Rescue and oh, okay. this one I couldn't even tell you exactly how to do that. But there's a flyer on my uh, the page that I have her on Facebook that tell you exactly where that website is and it's it's a website that you could print her flyers off of Um, okay it's not something i've set up all right kathy i appreciate this discussion thank you for being uh you know so vocal about you know your uh you know doing this i hope that my listeners uh you know can help you in this somehow you know my you know mainly my listeners in michigan Maybe they know something that uh, that can be added to you know the information that you already have. Well, I'm always praying for that. I'm always praying for that, and I just want to say one other thing. I'm not doing it just for Alexis. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this for other children that went missing in, under circumstances like this, and there are several. There are. And these are just the kids we know about. Yes, these are just the kids we know about, and something has to change. You know, these children that are adopted, they need to send further follow-up. Until they grow up, obviously, you know. You just don't know what's going to happen. You can't read a person's mind. Dennis Bowman adopted my daughter with a history of violence against women and was able to hide it because he did it as a teenager. So, Kathy, thank you for joining me on this episode of Unfound. Thank you. And that was my interview with Kathy Turkanian, biological mother of Andrea Bowman. After we completed the interview, uh, she and I had an opportunity to talk a little longer. And she wanted to convey to all of you a very important point that was not included. And that is, is that from 1975 until 2009-2010, she was a huge supporter of adoption in the United States. Obviously, toward the end of the interview, when I asked her about that, she was very clear that uh, she has a different opinion of it now. But for all of those years, she was a full supporter of adoption, that when this happened back in 1974-75, she thought that she was doing the right thing, even if she felt that she was being somewhat forced into it. 
And now, of course, she finds out that that wasn't uh, not necessarily the right thing to do, but it did not go the way she thought. And then in the last five, six years, of course, her opinion on adoption has changed. And now you can understand why I started off this show the way I did, is that Kathy, when she was a young woman, she thought, even though, obviously, in telling her story, very, very difficult circumstances that she was under between her husband, uh, who didn't want to have anything to do with her, was cheating on her, having no money, having a mother who was not just unsupportive, but somewhat combative, that she thought that she was doing the one good thing that she could do at the time, and now we find out that it wasn't. It very well may could be that had Kathy been able to keep her daughter Alexis, that Alexis would now be still alive, you know, 42-year-old, 41, 42-year-old woman with kids of her own. And and if you hear that passion in Kathy's voice, I think that that's what's going through her head. I think that she lives with that every day. But she does not want any of you to think that she's been anti-adoption this whole time. It's just with her personal circumstances is what has, you know, it's really opened up her eyes. And and in this particular case, man, a lot of people really did not do their jobs. People who are paid to do better and who are expected to do better, including the Bowmans themselves, a lot of people failed Alexis and failed, once she became Andrea Bowman, failed Andrea Bowman. And that's the huge tragedy in all of this. And frankly, if you go through, for example, when I go to charlieproject.org and go through cases and start looking at, at them, you see a lot of this. You see a lot of kids who, in fact, when I talked to Megan Good, she expressed the idea that a lot of these kids, it seems, never had a chance. Well, in Alexis's case, she did have a chance, and a lot of people failed her. And continuing to speak about how this show started, it's very possible with Dennis Bowman, and I, you know, this is not as this is not a who done it. I don't believe there's nobody. I guess there is that slim, 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 slim chance that he, uh, you know, she actually did run away. I don't know after hearing this story today, and if you, I know all of you are going to go research for yourselves. I think that you're probably going to come to the conclusion that Kathy has come to. But it's very possible that this guy, speaking of me not believing in karma, it very well could be that this guy lives out his years, lives to be 85 years old, and never pays for what happened to Andrea. And it sucks. It really does. And I'm hoping that all of you can help her. I'm going to continue to try to help Kathy any way I can. 
And I know who's going to be helping Kathy the most, and that's going to be Kathy. Now, why this is this story I told you before we started the interview, that why it's personal to me, and it came up a little bit towards the end of the, the interview, is that I'm adopted. And, in fact, I see at least a few similarities between myself and Alexis in that she was given up for adoption in the early 70s. I was given up for adoption in the early 70s. She ended up being under the care of Catholic Charities for a time. That's where I was given up for adoption after I was born, August 1st, 1970. Now, of course, things went a little bit different for me than they went for Alexis. I was adopted by Ed and Loretta Denzel, my parents to this day. And I told Kathy the truth. When she asked me about, didn't you want to search for your biological parents? That never even entered my mind. Not once. And in fact, my I know my biological family now. And if you ever hear me talk about my brother Brian, that's my biological brother. I didn't grow up with him. He and my brother, other brother, and my sister found me in 1994. They came looking for me. I didn't go looking for them. And since that happened in April of 1994, my family, the Denzel family, and my biological family have been one big, huge, happy family. I've gotten to meet my biological mother. In fact, she's still alive, and she and my mother get together quite often, although my biological father died in 2002 from stomach cancer. The kind of end that I've been able to have with my adoption story, you know what? That's what Kathy and Alexis deserved. That's what all kids who are given up for adoption deserve if they are interested in finding their biological family eventually. If the biological family is interested in finding their their child, you know, you know, a couple decades later. That's what they should all get. Now, I'm here to tell you I've known many adopted kids in my life, and I've known at least a few of them who went in search of their biological family. I can't name of one instance where it went well. I'm just being honest with you. And I've known probably at least between high school and college probably 12 adoptive children that I've known over my life. And the ones that have been in contact with their biological family, I think I'm the only one where it has gone really, really good. I don't know why that me- what that means, why I'm different. I think possibly because uh, my biological mother, when she gave me up, she wasn't 15, 16. She was a lot older. She already had three kids of her own. So it's just a different period in her life, and I think that that matters. My circumstances were very, very unique and why I was given up for adoption in contrast to why Kathy gave Alexis up for adoption and all these other cases where I think it was a f- these other children, the reason they were given up is because their mother, their father were very, very young. In my case, I was given up for adoption because my parents – thought they were past their child-rearing years. I think that matters. 
I've had a lot of time to think about this. And I think this is what drew me to this case is because you want these families, the, when this gets started, if a child wants to find a biological family member or the biological family goes and search, you want it to all end great. Everybody has the best of intentions, and it rarely goes that way. Once again, getting back to the theme that I talked about before I did this interview. Um, and I can tell you that I'm going to continue to think a lot, even though I'm going to, the show is going to move on to other cases. I'm going to continue to think about this particular uh, case a lot because I know that if just a couple different things would have happened in my life, 1969, 1970, who knows, maybe I would have gotten adopted by a Dennis Bowman. Instead, I got adopted by two people who are exactly the opposite of him. Two people who are still alive, my parents are still alive, who I am very, very close to. At least I think so. Uh, and I wish that that would have happened to Alexis as well, that she would have been raised by two very good people. Then Kathy would have gone in search of her one day and uh, all of that uh, could have happened good for them that happened for me. doesn't look like that that's going to happen, and it, that's just the way this earth is, and, it, and it's unfortunate. I hope all of you can help Kathy out. I hope you'll go to her Facebook page. I hope that you will continue to support her and her quest for finding her daughter and making sure that Dennis Bowman is brought to justice. I'm Ed Denzel, and you have been listening to Unfound. Unfound.